I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. I'm Adrian, and with me, of course, is Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Dr. Aaron Caymans, paleontologist from Flinders University. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So you study animals that are no longer here. Yep, that's pretty much the gist of it. All of them except humans. So Australia, I understand, has a pretty rich fossil record going right back to the earliest life. Is that correct? That's right. We're actually pretty lucky in the continent that we live in. We've got a fantastic fossil record that starts off almost 600 million years ago with some of the earliest complex life. And that's known from the Ediacara Ranges just up in the Flinders. So really close to us. Just down the road. Fantastic. I've been into your lab at Flinders Uni and I've had a look around at boxes and I recognise some of the names. Things like kangaroos and things that I understand. But then then there's things like Diprotodon and Thylacalea and all sorts of things that are no longer here. Yeah, that's right. So our main focus at the Flinders Uni Paleontology Lab is looking at the, the megafauna and the evolution of marsupials. So really in Australia, the marsupial fossil record goes back about 25 million years there are a couple of sites that are older than that but where we really start getting a good idea of what's going on from about 25 million years ago through to the present day and it's in the last period so recently speaking for us the last few hundred thousand years that we really see the largest of the marsupials uh, around and that is what we call the the megafauna really so So things like diprotodon that was like a giant wombat that walked around well there it i'll correct you there because it's not actually the giant wombat the giant wombat was an animal called fascalonus and it's related to modern wombats it was about a meter tall so it's still pretty big but diprotodon itself is actually a whole different family to wombats it's in its own family called the diprotodon today and their closest living relatives probably are wombats and koalas but the whole family is now extinct and did they live alongside humans? Yes, they would have. So, Well, the, the last end members. So there were two different species that were common in southern Australia when humans first arrived. One of them is Diprotodon, and the other one is Zygomaturus, which is like a, sm- a smaller version of Diprotodon. And when, when did they go extinct then? Well, that's the question. So really, we, we don't know the exact date, but based on the accumulation of evidence from sites right the way across the continent, we think that they started disappearing uh, probably 50,000 years ago and then by about 40,000 they're essentially extinct across the whole continent. Interesting. And when did humans arrive in Australia? Well, that's also another problematic question. It was thought that they probably arrived about 45, 50,000 years ago. There is a recent study from uh, Cape York Peninsula that's actually described an archaeological site that pushes that back to potentially 65,000 years ago. So somewhere in that kind of ballpark, we're looking at human movement through the continent. But yeah, it was really around, by the time we get to 40,000 years ago, there's evidence for humans right across the continent. So, so most of this megafauna disappeared shortly after humans arrived. Would that, would that be drawing 
a long bow to say that? or uh, No, that's, that is definitely the case. So we know that a lot of those iconic megafaunal species like the short-faced kangaroos like Thylacoleo, the marsupial lion and Diprotodon were around when humans first arrived and then disappeared um, before 40,000 years ago. So there's definitely a correlation there, but we don't know the exact causes. And teasing that out can be quite challenging. Okay, because I've also heard some people will argue that it's in fact climate change, but I mean, the climate's always fluctuated. So do we think it's a combination of both or we just, we don't really know? Yeah, so one thing we've got to remember is that Australia's gone through, well, the whole world has gone through a series of glaciations over the last 2.6 million years. So we've had what, or glaciations or ice ages every approximately 120, 130,000 years throughout that period. And so we have periods of climate change and periods of climate stability. And sometimes that change can be really rapid. But what we see in the fossil record is that although population numbers might change, the same species are surviving through those different climate change periods. Whereas this last one, whether it's climate is the main driver or humans are the additional factor that's having the influence, during this last period of climate fluctuation, the megafauna have disappeared for the most part. When we look at North America, they um, over 10,000 years ago, they had lots of megafauna to rival Africa today, and then supposedly humans arrived and those things disappeared too. Um, does that suggest that it's, it's us? Well, there's been a lot of discussion about that because we're looking at different timescales in different places around the world. So New Zealand lost its megafauna only seven or 800 years ago when humans arrived there. And there's really good evidence that the moa were butchered by the first humans to arrive in New Zealand. And we used to think that it was a really clear-cut case in North America as well. Humans arriving maybe 10, 12,000 years ago, there are clear evidence that the mammoths were butchered and that kind of thing. So we've got evidence of the humans hunting them and the megafauna are disappearing. But there is also evidence that has been coming out, particularly in the last decade or so, that's been suggesting that there were some significant climatic events happening around that time as well. Well, you talked about ice ages, um, and we know that North America was under you know, two, three kilometres thick of ice. When we think of world ice ages, what happened here in Australia? Were we under ice too? We've actually got a very different uh, situation in Australia. So we've got basically, when we're looking at a glaciation or a, the peak of the Ice Age, essentially a lot of the water that would be falling as rain and is around as fresh water today is locked up in ice, in those ice sheets. But in Australia, we didn't have the ice buildup. We had the aridity associated with the decrease in the amount of available water. So Australia was actually drier during the glaciation than it is today. And the only place on the Australian continent where we had glaciers was actually in New Guinea. And there are actually still a very small glacier in the highlands of New Guinea today. And it's, I think it's actually the only glacier present anywhere in the tropics. It's, that's interesting, wow. a tropical glacier. So we were even drier, possibly, then. Yeah. That's so, so that's, you know, evidence for us that um, the, the megafauna have been able to survive quite significant dry episodes because every glaciation you, you see this locking up of available water and a decrease in uh, 
freestanding water, whether that's in lakes or rivers or falling as rain. So clearly the megafauna have adapted to survive that. Yeah, wow. It's very interesting. So it's just bizarre to think that you've got humans living in Australia in an arid environment. Meanwhile, there are humans living in Ice Age environment, making huts out of whale bones at the same time. Yeah, well, we're a pretty adaptable race. <laughs> so the world gets colder and ice freezes in the you know the poles and the northern hemisphere and australia gets drier so now we have a a time where humans are affecting the climate i mean that's kind of unarguable to most sane people correct 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 excellent um so we're making the world a bit warmer we're adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere should we be happy about that well i guess it depends what your priorities are um we're moving towards that greenhouse world where theoretically larger volumes of CO2 or larger concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere mean that there is the potential for plants to grow more because of that higher level of CO2. But it's really the rate of change that is the big issue for us because we're looking at something that is almost unprecedented. In the peak of the last glaciation, we had a similar rate in the change of sea level. So the sea level was up to 130 metres lower than it is today. So Australia was actually much, much bigger and connected to New Guinea and connected to Tasmania and things because that water was so much lower. But what we're looking at is not just the change in sea level and the change in the, in the CO2 levels. There's a whole range of impacts in terms of our effects on fragmentation of habitats and breaking down of all those corridors which allow not just individual species, but communities to shift with the change in the climate. And that is the real issue there is there's no ability for them to follow the climatic zones that suit that they've evolved to live in. Yeah, you make a good point. So it's multifactorial. Not only are we abruptly warming the temperature, but like you say, islandization of species and all the other factors combined. So in the times of the dinosaurs, there was like 3,000, 4,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is that correct yeah so there was essentially the whole planet was a bit of a greenhouse there was a a lot of biomass around and a lot of plant growth which is theorized to actually have helped the huge size of dinosaurs evolve because there was so much food available for them to get larger and we we learn now that birds are basically dinosaurs is that is that something that you can... Yeah, bring? so that they're a subset, essentially, of the dinosaurs. So of the whole range of dinosaurs that were around, many orders actually went extinct. But within the theropod dinosaurs, a tiny little group of what we now call birds managed to survive through the big extinction event and then radiated hugely into the diversity that we see around us today. Birds are warm-blooded. Does that mean that the theropod dinosaurs were warm-blooded? There's actually... A big discussion around what degree of endothermy they had so when uh, particularly with the large animals the larger you are the smaller surface area to volume ratio you have so it means it's much easier to stay warm for longer just through the process of metabolism so a big animal that is eating and metabolizing its food produces heat as a uh, byproduct of that metabolizing and so it actually heats itself through that. And the bigger they are, the longer they'll take to cool down. So little tiny mammals, they need to eat a lot of food constantly to maintain that body temperature, whereas the bigger animals, 
don't need it so much. So there would have been a degree of inherent endothermia, if you like. Now, as to the active adaptations for um, maintaining body heat, there is it's generally accepted now that they probably were able to actively keep themselves warm rather than just the reptile version of basking in the sun and running around to keep themselves warm. So as the world warms, will that favour birds? Are we going to be invaded by massive birds, Aaron? Is that what's going to happen? Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see, really. Wait and but see. Um, there certainly are... I mean, look at Australia. We're 80 85% desert or arid and semi-arid regions. So we have a huge suite of animals that are adapted to living in hot weather and dry weather. And so we're not just looking at birds, we're looking at reptiles as well, uh, invertebrates. There's a huge community there. And the other thing is, if you think about the animals that are left in Australia, or the, rather the mammals that are left in Australia now, many of them are nocturnal. And that's actually a really good way of coping with heat as well. It's not just predator avoidance. So maybe we'll see a shift in what mammals are still around to more nocturnal behaviours to cope with that increasing temperature. Fantastic. Um, so I'm just going to ask a question about yourself. So you're obviously interested in paleontology. You're sitting here in a dinosaur shirt. I love that. <laughs> what got you interested in this area, mate? So I'm one of those kids who just never grew out of playing with plastic dinosaurs, essentially. <laughs> so five years old, sitting there. Um, one of the things I used to love doing every time I visited my grandparents, I would open up the Encyclopedia Britannica to the dinosaurs page and... The dinosaur that I fell in love with was actually the most was an animal called Dimetrodon, which I found out later is not even a dinosaur. It's actually probably, you know, predicting what where I was going to go further in my research. It's actually one of the groups that led to the origins of mammals, so the mammal-like reptiles. And if we keep following them down through the ages, we get to the huge diversity of mammals we've got around us today. And that, and just... I guess there's that fantastic nature around these beasts that were completely different to anything that we've got around today that were all over the world. And just knowing that the mammals that we see today and the, and the other animals around us, even though there's such amazing variety, it's only a tiny little snapshot of everything that's ever lived. And I want to know all about everything that's ever lived. It's just, <laughs> it's all so fascinating to me that the opportunity to be involved in learning more about what has gone before is something I couldn't pass up. And on the cutting edge of it too. How do you get your mind around such long periods of time? Well, I think it's, it's all about context. So an understanding of the processes involved, whether it's geological or chemical, uh, we really help you put it all into a time frame. So we can do things like look at different dating methods. And um, so, you know, carbon uh, dating gives us that sort of first view or into the last 50,000 years in terms of dating mechanisms. Then we can look at um, the other end of the spectrum, uranium decay series, where we can get ages in hundreds of millions of years. And understanding that time frame and learning about the geological processes involved in accumulation of sediments and uplift and folding and all that kind of thing really gives you a perspective I guess on the kind of time that takes just for the landscape to evolve and then you add on top of that what's actually going on with organisms and 
a good understanding of the process of evolution, how long that takes, how many generations it takes, and just extrapolating that back through time. And I think it gives you the, the perspective. So I'm, I consider myself hugely fortunate to have been supported in what I want to do and be exposed to the levels of education that have allowed me to, to gain that insight and that perspective. And Dimetrodon, is that what he was called? Yep. Yeah. So do you think maybe if we went back through our family history we all have a common ancestor that's a, a some kind of four-legged dinosaur. Well, if you trace it back far enough, we're all fish. We're all fish. Yep. In the womb, so, evolutionarily, in, our, we in, our, start in the womb, we start off a fish, don't mm-hmm. we? Fish-like not, thing. Yeah, the, the tail's not quite so well developed, but, um, yeah, when we're sort of really early on in development, there is a lot of similarity. And, and that s- study of how animals actually develop as they grow within their lifetime, ontogeny is actually, in a way, an echo of the evolutionary process. So sometimes when we are trying to understand how a group of animals are related, we actually go back and look at the traits of the young in those different species to figure out where they're connected. And you can look at this stuff forever. When, when you see children growing up in households that are strictly religious that learn that the world is 6,000 years old and that dinosaur fossils are fake. Does that, do, you, do you think that's child abuse? I think it's very sad, and I think, that the, I think that it's probably a reflection of the degree of education that those parents have been exposed to. And that's where I was sort of talking about how fortunate I consider myself to have been exposed to the basically free smorgasbord of as much education as I wanted. And that's something that we living in Australia take for granted, but it is really a privilege. And then, so the onus is really on us to give back. And the only way we're going to actually be able to combat these people who are being educated in this insular environment where they're not actually allowed to think outside of the box of facts they're being given... Uh, is the way that we're going to help change that. So we need to look at making sure that people are exposed to education at the kindergarten level, at the preschool, at the primary school, at the high school level. It's not just about tertiary education. They need to actually be allowed to learn what they want to learn. So you find it pretty rewarding being able to lecture in um, your field of interest? Absolutely. And it's it's, it's not even just... Uh, lecturing in a tertiary setting we do outreach to all kinds of different ages um, of kids and adults and talking about what I'm doing and sharing what I'm doing with the wider community is not just my responsibility as a scientist but it's something I really enjoy too. Do you get to do much work out on the field Aaron? Uh, As you find more and more and more stuff in the field you actually end up doing less and less field work because you've got to sit down and write up what you've been finding. Um, I usually... The, the most field work I've done in a year is probably about four months. Uh, generally, this I tend to spend a maximum of six to eight weeks out in the field in any given year. Uh, and it's not all on one trip. That's spread over um, the whole of the year. Sometimes it's teaching. We take students out in the field with us as well to teach them paleontological techniques. Um, but, you know, the... Unfortunately, the last few years, we've had some really successful field trips. We've been finding some amazing things. And what that means is we've now got to spend more time 
in the lab in front of the computers, writing it up, analysing it, so we can actually share it with everyone. <laughs> you mentioned to me the other night about plesiosaurs. South Australia didn't really have any dinosaurs that we know of. We were underwater during the Mesozoic, is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. So particularly in the Cretaceous period, which is where most dinosaur fossils in Australia are known from, or the, the time period they're known from, uh, there was a inland sea called the Aramanga Sea, and that came down through Queensland, New South Wales, uh, and much of uh, South Australia and the Northern Territory as well. So we had this big inland sea. So what we, the fossils that we get preserved are the animals that were living in the sea at the time. So in terms of the invertebrates, we get things like uh, squid and the um, so ammonites, that kind of thing. Um, and then we get the bigger vertebrates as well, including not just the marine reptiles like plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs and that kind of thing. We also get turtles and um, some of the early members of those different groups of reptiles. Very interesting. And for the record, plesiosaurs are the marine reptiles. Ichthyosaurs, what's, is that another marine rep reptile? Yeah, yes, they are. So the ichthyosaur looks a little bit like a dolphin with a long snout. The plesiosaur's got a much longer neck. And then there's actually other um, members of that group like chronosaurs as well. And some of the biggest predators that have ever lived actually belong to that group. You often read, like, random factoid, the blue whale was the biggest animal that ever lived. Is that true? Yes, it is. So um, what we've got to remember when we're thinking about how animals are put together is that there is a limit, a mechanical limit, to how much bone can support. So on land, animals have to carry and move around their entire body weight. In the sea, they're helped out by buoyancy, so they don't actually have to be able to support their own weight. So that straight away takes... A, away the main controlling mechanism for large body size. So if they're able to be supported by the ocean and function, then essentially size is much less of a constricting factor. And that's why we see expansion to the stage of the blue whale in terms of body size. Okay. So I just want to finish off with a couple of things about megafauna. We, we said we'll talk a bit about megafauna. Firstly, what does megafauna mean? So traditionally it meant anything or any animal over 40 kilograms in weight. So technically speaking, most of your dinosaurs are megafauna, you know, it's not, and even things in the ocean are megafauna as well. We're megafauna. Yep, that's right. Um, and we've also taken, modified that to include animals that were 40% or more larger than their closest living relatives. Because in Australia, as a good example, we actually had a range of animals, not just at the large end of the spectrum, but in the medium and small body size, that were larger 120,000 years ago than they are today. So there was a giant echidna, uh, there was a large Tasmanian devil, even the modern kangaroos that we have around had larger versions or, or species or morphs within their species than are around today. I even read that some of the Aboriginal Australian remains were larger than living Homo sapiens? I think that's probably um, extremely variable depending on where you're looking at. And even when we um, come to when Europeans first arrived in Australia, certainly a lot of the islanders up in the northern parts of Australia were significantly larger than other humans in other parts of the continent. So it's, it's probably you know, really localised as to the body size overall. Do you have a favourite 
megafaunal species? It's a pretty hard question. I did my PhD on diprotodontids, so that's the whole family that diprotodon relates to, and there are some pretty amazing animals within that group. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to pick a favourite, but certainly diprotodon and zygomaturus as the the keystone herbivores within the Australian ecosystem performed a really important role and we we use analogies like uh, elephants or rhinos and that kind of thing but really these animals were completely different and and amazing and special in their own right and we only understand a small proportion of the biology of these animals at the moment so yeah it's crazy to think that that we're more related to a rhinoceros or an elephant than they were yeah that's correct so the placental and um, marsupial mammals even though they are related they diverged probably at least 130 million years ago just the other day <coughs> weren't that long i remember that remember that <laughs> come right back wow. so with your uh, with your knowledge and everything you've done to tell you what sort of happened to the to the planet before this point does that allow you to say you know, the future of our planet or is it evolving <laughs> too much now to be able to say that well certainly all of the work that scientists have done over the time that we've been working on the field of paleontology has allowed us to get a much better idea of what was around Mm -hmm. and the processes that are involved in extinction. Um, If we have a look at what's happening around us today, we're actually in what we would call the cusp of moving into another major extinction event. So there have been five major extinctions throughout the Earth's history uh, where upwards of 75% of the known fossil species have been made extinct. And we're moving into that kind of uh, sort of category at the moment with the number of species that have gone extinct since humans have expanded across the planet. And it's it's still accelerating. And, And one of the problems there is that we really haven't even quantified how many living invertebrates there are. So invertebrates are one of the um, areas where we know relatively little about their diversity. There are still tens of thousands of species of insects that haven't even been described. And so we don't even know how fast they're disappearing. So in terms of predicting the future, we can certainly see that we're not in a good place at the moment. But the flip side of that is that as an intelligent species who's able to adapt right the way across the continent, we have more knowledge than any other species that's ever lived on how to positively interact with the environment. So we have the tools, we have the technology, we just need to actually have people wanting to take that step and look after the planet to be able to do some pretty amazing things. That's a great message. That's a great message. What we're trying to push. A lot of faith in the next generation. Sorry, sorry, future generations. (laughs) Uh, But it's on you, no pressure. Um, Dr. Aaron Kamen, thank you so much for coming on, mate. You're welcome. That was great. I enjoyed the chat. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks very much.